you would touch our hearts and conform them by your word for your glory and, Lord, for our joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians 4, verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. We'd uh, love for you to, to have that. Uh, we've been walking through Philippians uh, for a while now, and we're, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 13 this morning. Many of you will be at least somewhat familiar with, you will have heard of uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. Uh, he is now a 71-year-old retired pastor. He planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in 1989. Uh, he's very gifted uh, by the Lord in, in addressing those who come from a, a secular, non-believing background. He's written many books. Uh, some, some of you will have read some of them, The Reason for God, Making Sense of God, uh, many others. Uh, I have quoted from him often and will continue to do that, I'm sure. Uh, in the future. Just over two years ago, in May of 2020, Tim Keller was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. He had already survived a bout with thyroid cancer back in 2002, and now he found himself, finds himself once more battling cancer and facing his own mortality. Uh, in, in an interview, Keller revealed that he received that diagnosis two years ago while he was in the middle of writing his book called Hope in Times of Fear, uh, a book that focuses on the transformative power of the resurrection. In an interview, here's what he said. He said, here I am writing a book about the resurrection, and I realized I, I only half believed I was going to die. I went back and realized that in some ways I also only half believed in the resurrection, not intellectually so much, but all the way down deep in my heart. Coming face to face with one's own mortality, the, the transience, the, the fleeting nature of life drastically impacts the way a person thinks about and looks at life. Keller went on to say in his interview, the things of earth become less crucial. They're, they're not so important to you. You realize you don't need them to be happy. He concluded the interview with these words, What the future holds, I don't know. Pray that I would have years and not months left and that the chemotherapy would continue to be effective. But we are ready for whatever God decides for me. We're spiritually ready. I do know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. And when I die, I will know that resurrection too. Tim Keller doesn't want his earthly life to come to an end. He doesn't want to leave his wife, Kathy, a widow. He doesn't want to leave his adult sons, their families, grandchildren behind. But Keller knows Jesus. And in Jesus, he knows a contentedness that is not rooted in the circumstances of his life, not rooted in the realities of this world, but rooted in his relationship with Jesus. That is the point of the verses that we're going to look at this morning, that, that knowing Christ, being found in Jesus, is the sole avenue to true contentment. 
Knowing Jesus, being found in him is the sole avenue, the sole way, the, the only way for us to have true contentment. We have been walking through this letter over the last seven months or so, and uh, we are coming towards the end. If you've been with us through this series of messages in this letter, uh, you will have a good grasp of some of the important contextual matters. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church that he planted in the Roman colony of Philippi. It was the first church in Europe. Paul planted it about 12 years before he writes this letter. We know that Paul writes this letter from prison in Rome. He has been there, chained to a Roman soldier for two years, awaiting trial before Caesar, not sure of what lies ahead. He is writing to a church where not all is well. Two major issues. Internally, there is some tension in relationships. There's a lack of unity. And externally, there is opposition. They are they are experiencing persecution from those around them who are angry at them for their faith, their loyalty to Jesus, as opposed to being loyal to Caesar and Rome. The occasion on which Paul writes this letter is the arrival of Epaphroditus from Philippi. Philipp, the Philippian believers sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, with a financial gift to Paul in Rome to provide for his needs while imprisoned. And Paul sends this letter to the Philippians back to them by means of Epaphroditus on his return. Now as we near the end of the conclusion, Paul will here express his thanksgiving to this church for their financial gift. The, the thing that, that uh, occasioned this letter. Now some people think it's strange that Paul would leave it all the way to this point in the letter, to the, the end of the letter, the closing verses to give thanks for their gift, but uh, it need not be thought of as odd at all. First of all, though their financial gift was the, the, the first reason Paul wrote, it's not the primary reason. It doesn't lie at the center of this letter. He writes to, to address these two issues going on in their life together, these things that he learned through Epaphroditus, that, that relationally there is tension, there's a lack of unity, a lack of togetherness in the church, and that in the face of opposition there is fear. And so he writes to them, calling them to oneness, to stand together, and to stand together for the gospel in the face of whatever opposition comes. And so those have been his primary concerns. Not only that, but this letter would have been read aloud to the community as they gathered. And so with these words of thanks for their gift coming at the end, these would have been the words left ringing in the ears of the Philippian believers. Thank you for your gift. This morning we're going to be looking at four verses in the first part of Paul's Thanksgiving expressed to the Philippians. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read verses 10 to 13. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Here's what I want to do in our time together this morning. Four things I want to address. First, why is Paul rejoicing? Second, uh, what has Paul learned? Third, what Paul is not saying? And fourth, 
what we are to remember. So why Paul is rejoicing, what Paul has learned, what Paul is not saying, and what we are to remember. So first, why Paul is rejoicing. Our text begins with these words. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that, you, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Uh, remember, the, the thing that precipitated Paul writing this letter to the Philippians was the, the Philippians' gift, the arrival in Rome of Epaphroditus with their financial gift for Paul. Things in the penal system in the Roman Empire of the first century considerably different than what is the case today. Uh, the necessities of life, especially food, were not provided by the state. Those had to be provided by, by relatives or by friends. And so this gift from the Philippians to Paul was, was timely. It was a great and significant gift, no small thing. Now, if, if we read the text carefully, though, we, we might be a little bit surprised by Paul's words, how he qualifies his statement. Listen again, and, and I'm going to put emphasis on a couple words that I really want you to, to notice. Let me read again. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Do you hear that? I, I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. It, doesn't that sound like Paul is saying, like, finally, taken long enough, like, finally, about time you got with it and sent me some money. Right? I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. But is that what's going on here? I want to suggest that, that, that it's not, that there's nothing pejorative, that Paul is not expressing his disapproval here. Paul has just barely, earlier in chapter 4, spoken of the Philippians as his joy and his crown. Uh, Paul has boasted about these believers. In his letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this about the Philippian believers uh, with regards to their generosity in giving. He says this, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people and they exceeded our expectations. Paul speaks those words about the Philippian believers to another church. So, so no, there's, not, there's nothing critical. Paul's not saying like, ah, oh, finally. We know that definitively by, by, that Paul's not expressing disapproval by, by what follows immediately after this opening sentence in our text. He, he continues with these words. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. Paul asserts the fact that, that though there has been a season where they have not provided for him, though there's been a hiatus, if you will, he, he, he says it's not because of your lack of concern, but because of a lack of opportunity. Now, we're not told what... Uh, what precipitated that lack of opportunity. But he says, I, I know it's not that you didn't have concern, you just had, didn't have opportunity to express it. But now they've had opportunity, they've once again shown their concern with this financial gift. And, and so Paul speaks of their renewed concern. In fact, the word translated re renewed is a word that comes out of botany. Think of your perennials right now, this time of year, as they, they blossom again. They come back to life. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, your concern has blossomed again. I see it again. It was there before, and then there wasn't opportunity, and now it's blossomed again, and, and I rejoice greatly in that. For Paul, uh, Paul says, for this I, I rejoice in the Lord. Not for their gifts per se, and this is an important thing. Not for their gifts per se, but for their concern for him. 
Paul's rejoicing. He wants them to understand that it's, he's rejoicing that they are caring for him, that they are concerned, not that he got some cash. When we move on to verse 11, we again encounter something on the lips of Paul that has the potential to sound like a, a lack of gratitude. Here's what we read. He says, listen, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Essentially, Paul is saying, thanks for the gift, but I don't really need it. And we might be tempted to say, yo, a little bit of tact, please. Right? Like, first he says, I'm glad that finally you're able to give, not that I really needed it. Right? Is that, I mean, that, that's what it, it looks like. But again, this is not about a lack of tact or, or a lack of gratitude. Paul is trying to guard against anyone drawing the wrong inference from what he has just said. It would be wrong for us to infer that Paul is rejoicing over the gift as such. Now I can finally eat again. His joy is over their friendship. His joy is in the relationship that he has with them. They are his friends. They are dear to him. And he does not want them to think that his joy is because they sent him money. That his joy is because uh, they were of some usefulness to him. The, the, the relationship is not utilitarian. It, no, he, he loves them. They are his sisters and his brothers, and they have demonstrated care for him in the same way that he cares desperately for them. And he rejoices in their relationship. They are, they are his family in Christ. They stand together with him, and they are partners for the sake of the gospel. And so for that, he rejoices and give thank, gives thanks on this occasion of them sending him money, this gift but he wants them to understand that it's, it's them that he is grateful for. It is his relationship with them for which he is so grateful. Second, that's why Paul is rejoicing. Second, what Paul, what Paul has learned. Twice within these few verses, Paul speaks of what he has learned. Verse 11, he says, For I have learned to be content. Verse 12, he's going to say, I have learned the secret of being content. What a staggering claim. What a staggering claim. I have learned to be content. I have learned the secret of being content. We live in a society, we live in a world that is permeated with discontent. We, we live in a world where there's not a lot of contentedness when we look around. I mean, the advertising interest industry thrives on this. We're bombarded daily with images and messages of the things that we need and that we get these things, we will find content. That's the contentedness. That's the promise. Last night during a commercial break in the game, I thought I'm going to just pay attention to the commercials for a moment. And, and, and I was told that having a Chevy truck with its own little Wi-Fi, would, would, would just bless. I could go and write sermons on a mountaintop somewhere. It'd be amazing. I, I could experience financial savings by booking my vacations with Expedia. Bounty paper towels will make all my messes go away. RBC has this cool thing that will make it really easy to split the bill with my friends. I won't have to chase them for money. McDonald's can be delivered to me by DoorDash. 
And then something about Pepsi being the best, best tasting cola. I didn't buy that one. <laughs> right? We're bombarded with messages that say, buy this, get this, you need this, and that will satisfy. You will find contentment. We know beyond that, just the things that, that we search, that we look to for contentment. That, that next stage in life, going into junior high, getting your driver's license, graduating high school, meeting Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright, a new home, lots of money, achieving your financial goals, just get there and you will experience contentment. Actor Jim Carrey says, once said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We live in a world that is saturated with discontentedness. And lest we think it's only out there, it's in our own hearts too. Pastor and author Alistair Begg says this, I face discontentedness in my own heart and mind on almost a daily basis. All the things this world offers, all the things that people chase, all the things that so many of us believe will bring contentment will fail us. And into that, Paul says, I've learned, I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content. To make it more, more astounding, listen to what, what he qualifies each of those statements with. I, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. For I have, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. How remarkable is that? And then he continues in verse 12. I, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. And whatever the case is, whether he's in need or has plenty, he says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, he knows to be content. I want you to think back with me to the founding of this church. Paul and his missionary companions uh, left Troas. They, they sailed across the Aegean Sea, landed in Europe, trekked up to this, the colony of Philippi, and there was no synagogue there, not enough Jewish men in this city, in this colony, and so he went outside the city to a place of prayer and met some women, including a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. And she was converted. She came to faith in Jesus. And then she implored on Paul and his companions to come and stay at her house. And as we could imagine, it was probably a pretty nice house. Paul probably ate well, slept in a comfortable bed while he was at Lydia's house. He knows what it is to have plenty. But now he's writing the Philippians from a prison in Rome. He's been chained to a Roman soldier for two years. And he says, I know contentment no matter what, at Lydia's house or in prison. It, those external things make no difference. Gordon Fee writes this, Paul had learned to accept whatever came his way, knowing that his life was not conditioned by either poverty or wealth comfort or, or pain, and that his relationship to Christ made one or the other essentially irrelevant in any case. Paul knew both, and his contentment was not dictated by those things. I want to read a quote by C.S. Lewis about our desire as human beings. It's, you've probably heard part of it. I want to read it in its longer context, because I think there's lots here that is helpful. 
He writes, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, that is, people feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The quote goes on with something maybe you haven't read or heard. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that longing, that desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or image, or mirage, sorry. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. We were created by God for God. And until we rest in Him, we will remain restless. We, we will not experience contentment apart from a relationship with Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, I, 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 must, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true, true country, which I shall not find till after death. Is that not what Paul has been talking about? Forgetting what is behind Straining every muscle, he is pursuing the prize of, of Christ, knowing Christ fully, knowing Christ one day, heaven in heaven. Has he not been calling the Philippians to join with him in running that race? And not only the Philippians, but also all who will hear the gospel. The truth is, every one of us was created to know God, to live in relationship with God. And the Bible reveals to us our own hearts know that we have all rebelled against God. We have rejected God's authority. We have rejected Him and said, I will go it my own way. And we all experience brokenness and we experience hunger. We experience discontentedness. And I want to say to you that we search for that. As human beings, we search for answers in a myriad of things. And, and here's what our text tells us. Here's what Paul has discovered and that he says to us. You will only find contentment when you surrender to Jesus. When you come to Jesus in repentance and say, I have sinned against you. I need your grace and your mercy. I can't fix what's broken in my life. I need your mercy and your grace. When we bow before him and we receive it, he promises that through his death on the cross for us, he has paid the penalty for our sin. He has paid the price for all of our rebellion. And that when we bow before Him in faith, we receive His grace. We are washed. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. We are clothed with His perfect obedience, with His perfection, with His righteousness. We are adopted by the Father. We are redeemed. We are saved. We are brought into the relationship for which we were created. A relationship that alone will bring contentment. Paul knows. Paul knows that contentment. He knows that it is found only in union with Jesus. 
And that's what he's asserting here. That's, that's what he's, he's proclaiming here. The secret of contentment is looking to Jesus, entering into a relationship with Jesus. He knows that. And, and that means that everything else is irrelevant. That other circumstances in life are not what will make him content, whether he's wealthy or whether he's poor. It's in Christ alone that he will find contentment. We've looked at why Paul is rejoiced. We looked at what Paul has learned. Let's look thirdly at... I'm sorry, before I move on, one thing I want to touch on. And that is that Paul has learned this, the text says. He's learned this. This doesn't come naturally. You can't take a pill and all of a sudden know this. He has learned this over time. He has learned this as he has come to terms with the truth of the gospel. He has learned this as he's come to grasp the truth proclaimed in Scripture and to believe it and live in light of it. Learning that the good gifts in this life are our good gifts, but that they're not ultimate, but they point us to the gift giver. Learning what C.S. Lewis pointed out, that, the desire, that, that we have a desire that no experience, no, nothing in this world can satisfy. Learning the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Let's turn to the third thing, what Paul is not saying. I want us to turn to verse 13. This is a verse that is probably well known. Maybe many of you have heard it. Maybe you know it off by heart. I can do all this through him who gives me strength is the NIV's update. I know it as I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well known verse, but I would contend that it is a verse that is often misunderstood and misused. When I was in high school, I remember hearing about a man. He claimed to be a follower of Jesus, and yet he was sleeping around. He was engaged in a, a multiple sexual relationships. And he actually defended what he was doing with this verse. He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Ridiculous. Clearly, he was gravely deluded. But there are other ways that we can misunderstand and misapply this verse. A former major league pitcher played for the Cleveland Indians at the time, the Cleveland Guardians now. Back in, I think, the 80s, he was a pitcher. He was a good pitcher. And on the bill of his cap, he wrote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There are, to be sure, worse things to write on your hat. That's not my point. But, but let me ask you this. Was his ability to throw a ball related to him having faith in Jesus? Was his ability to strike out all those batters related to him being a Christian? Now, now I would say for sure, God is the one who, who gave him his athletic ability. God gave him his personality, that drive to compete and improve and get better and, and make it to the major leagues. God made him, formed him. But, but is the fact that he is in Christ, the fact that he has repented and believed, is is this saying that's why he can strike out all these batters? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is that what Paul's saying? That, that in Jesus I can do anything I put my mind to. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. My middle son is studying mathematics at the U of A. Studying all kinds of weird stuff like imaginary numbers, theoretical, like I don't even. There are times where he comes, hey dad, can I tell you about this thing I'm learning? And, Occasionally I listen and I'm like, Pfft. and I took math. I, I did grade 13 calculus even on a terror, and I did okay. Like, 
I, I got good grades. It was always a struggle for me. My nickname in high school, I've said this before, was Mr. Stupid Questions. It took me a while to catch on, but I would get it, and, and I'd get good grades. It's not like I have no, or had no clue. It was a long time ago since I did math. But he, he's doing this stuff with imaginary numbers. It didn't even sound like a class, right? That sounds like, imagine, what's what imaginary numbers? How can that be a thing? Is, is this verse saying that if I, you know, because I'm in Christ, that if I put my mind to it, I could sign up and take math with my son and, and figure this out. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is, is that Paul's point? Because that's how many of us have read it and applied it to our lives. I can do all things through Christ. If I just put my mind to it, I'm in Christ. Now, I don't want to put God in a box. God could intervene supernaturally in some dramatic way and give me an understanding of imaginary numbers or whatever they are, and maybe I could pass. Like God could do that. I, I'm not going to say he can't. But here's the point. This is what Paul is saying. Because I am in Christ, because I am a disciple of Jesus, I could enter into that math class and fail miserably and be okay because I'm in Christ. That's the point, and that's really different, isn't it? Do you see? Because you are in Christ, adversity does not have to devastate you. Because you are in Christ, struggle does not have to overwhelm you. Because you are in Christ, students, you can flunk your finals and you can get on with life because you're in Christ. What matters is that you are in Christ. You can lose your job and you can be okay because you are in Christ. You can experience economic disaster, but because you are in Christ, you will be okay. I can do all this. I can live in the midst of poverty and want and need, Paul says. I can do all of this because I'm in Christ who gives me strength. That's the point. That all these circumstantial things in our lives need not devastate us. He declares that because he's in Christ in relationship with Jesus, he can face whatever comes. Fourth, what we are to remember. I want to highlight two things at this point. First, that Christian contentment, and this should be obvious already, Christian contentment is independent of our circumstances. Happiness is dependent on what's happening. But like joy, contentment is not determined by our circumstances. Paul is writing from prison, yet he is abounding in joy. He's writing to Christians who are facing opposition and persecution in Philippi, and he calls them to rejoice. And here he adds to that call, the call to contentment. Remember verse 9, which was the last verse immediately before this? Here's what Paul said in verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. He is calling the Philippian believers to contentment in Christ, in the midst of what they face, to, to embrace the secret of contentment, that their contentment will be found in their union with Jesus, in their relationship with Jesus, the one who loves them, the one who died for them, who gave himself for them, the one whom they are pursuing, the one before whom they will one day stand. Contentment. We need to hear this. I want every one of you, young people, I want you to hear this. Contentment is not found in anything else but Jesus. It is time to get off the treadmill. It is time to stop looking for looking to the gifts for what you will only receive from the giver. 
Which leads us to the second thing I want to highlight. And that is Christian contentment is rooted in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He's present here right now. He wants you to know His love for you. He gave His life for you. He died on the cross for not just sin in general, but for your sin, for your rebellion, for all the wrong things you have done and I have done. Jesus bled and died and paid the penalty in my place, in your place. Jesus longs for you to come to Him and to rest in His embrace. To recognize that there is nothing else that will satisfy. There is nowhere else where you will find true contentment other than in His arms. Paul knows that there is nothing that compares with knowing Christ. He speaks of earlier in the letter the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And because of that, he runs. He pursues Christ. He pursues knowing Him. He pursues intimacy with Him. He he pursues the mission Christ has called us to. And, And none of that running, none of that straining, none of that effort is in order that He'll be accepted. It's it's not to get God to love Him. Please, all of that effort, that straining, that running is is out of what Christ has done, that He is already, by God's grace, He has found in Him. And He knows that His heart will not finally be satisfied until He stands before Him in heaven. And there is nothing that He wants more than to know the embrace of Christ on that day. And so He runs How about you? Are you pursuing lesser things? Are you looking to God's good gifts for contentment that you will only receive from the giver of those good gifts? Jesus is inviting you this morning to let go of all those idols. That's what they are. When we look to created things for what only the Creator can give us. Those are the idolatries of our heart. Are there idols in your life that Jesus is calling you to lay down? Paul tells us that only intimacy with Christ is the place where we will find contentment. What does it look like for you to reorder your life centered upon knowing Christ, pursuing Christ, looking to Christ for the contentment that you long for, that we all long for, that we were created to have satisfied in Jesus. I want to remind you about what I shared about Tim Keller in my opening words. As he faces cancer for a second time, as he faces the uncertainty about his future, the future of his earthly life, that this diagnosis has brought upon him, this bringing him face to face once more with his mortality. I want to read again one of the things that I quoted earlier. He, he, he went on and said this, the things of earth become less crucial. They're not so important to you. Or you realize you don't need them to be happy. Contentment is found in Jesus alone. The contentment that we long for is found in knowing Christ, in loving Christ, in looking to Christ. I'm going to conclude just by reading 
the first verse in the chorus of a hymn, a hymn that many of you will be familiar with, a hymn entitled, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Amen.